1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ruben Neuenheiss. Today I'm talking with Dr. James Steinhoff about his book, Automation and Autonomy, Labor, Capital, and Machines in the Artificial Intelligence Industry. This book argues that Marxist theory is essential for understanding the contemporary industrialization of the form of artificial intelligence called machine learning. It includes a political economic history of AI tracking how it went from a fringe research interest for a handful of scientists in the 1950s to a centerpiece of cybernetic capital 50 years later. It also includes a political economic study of the scale, scope, and dynamics of the contemporary AI industry, as well as a labor process analysis of commercial machine learning software production based on interviews with workers and management in AI companies around the world, ranging from tiny startups to giant technology firms. On the basis of this study, Steinhoff develops a Marxist analysis to argue that the popular theory of immaterial labor, which holds that information technologies increase the autonomy of workers from capital, tending towards a post-capitalist economy, does not adequately describe the situation of high-tech digital labor today. In the AI industry, digital labor remains firmly under the control of capital. Steinhoff argues that theories discerning therein an emergent autonomy of labor are, in fact, witnessing labor's increasing automation. James Steinhoff is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto, Canada. James Steinhoff, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Uh, Thank you, Ruben. Uh, My pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, well, to jump right in, can you introduce yourself and talk a bit about your academic interests?
1: Uh, Absolutely. So... Uh, I'm a scholar in media studies my field. My background is philosophy, but uh, through an early uh, exploration of uh, philosophy of artificial intelligence, uh, I ended up focusing these days on the political economy of artificial intelligence and other algorithmic uh, media like that. And so I'm interested in in the not so much these sort of speculative possibilities of future in the uh, of, of AI's future, but more about how AI is being used uh, right now in in the real world and how businesses are making money with that, and what sort of implications those actual practical applications of AI might have for society uh, broadly.
0: Cool. Yeah, and then. Can you talk a bit more about, um, like, what made you want to write this book? Like, I I mean, I know it's a a book version of your dissertation, um, but so maybe the the question instead is, what drew you? Like, what are you trying to um, add to this field of research?
1: Good question. So uh, this kind of um, leads me to think of what I think is a funny anecdote, but back. Several years ago, when I was uh, beginning a PhD study looking for a topic to, to do, uh, I was, I'd I known of, of artificial intelligence as a sort of theoretical or philosophical topic for a while, and I wondered, I, I was hearing about it again after uh, years where no one was talking about it. I was hearing about it again, and I was wondering, well, is this uh, is this going to be a real thing, or is, is it is it only hype? And there's definitely a lot of hype around it, right? And I pitched the idea to some professors, and uh, quite notably, a economics professor told me you can't do the political economy of a of a non-existent technology, right? It's very dismissive that this it's it's, it's, it's all hype and uh, it's not something worth studying. You know, this this was 2015, so uh, it. it Luckily I found, uh, some other professors who were more, uh, thought the topic had more, more promise. And it turned out in the years that followed, it became a distinct subsector at the tech industry. So uh, it, it panned out luckily for me. Um, why, what, what led me to talk, uh, talk about it is, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I, I don't have, a, I, I lost the thread on
0: that one. No, that's fine. Um, I mean, I think we, we get a gist of um, like the, the background that you have. And um, yeah, so, well, the, the primary object of critique in this book is a school of thought called post-operismo. Can you provide um, like a, a bit of a historical context that helps us understand how post-operismo developed?
1: Absolutely. So, Post operismo, uh, first of all, is post operismo. Uh, yes. Maybe you gather, right? And operismo is workerism in Italian. And workerism or operismo was one of sort of, uh, one, one of, you know, many schools of thought that evolved around the world, uh, particularly the Western world, in. The era in which people began to become, uh, sorry, leftists, leftist thinkers began to become disenfranchised or disenchanted with the USSR. So if we could call what the USSR's uh, theoreticians were were, were calling orthodox Marxism or what we now call orthodox Marxism and what was being promulgated in the USSR uh, was a certain reading of Marx and a certain application of Marx, and uh, as certain realities in the USSR unfolded, uh, many people outside of the USSR became dubious of that certain version and evolved their own new interpretations of Marx and Marxism. And Oparismo was one of these, which which, was, you know, centrally, I'm no historian, but centrally, Aparismo wanted to return to the worker as the focus, the, as the, the first stage. Um, quite famously, one of the early Aparismo thinkers, and I can't recall which one, argued that rather than starting with capital as the active force and considering how labor reacts to capital, um, what's needed is to consider labor as the active force and capital reacting to labor. So hence workerism, right? The labor worker is, is the primary, uh, mover in this relationship. And post-Aparismo is what sort of came after Aparismo. Some people that were involved with Aparismo went on, uh, most notably Antonio Negri, uh, went on to then create post-operismo by combining some of the ideas of operismo with post-structuralist thinking uh, more broadly. So what's the most the most famous example of this are the collaborative works of Antonio Negri and Michael Hart, such the, the first one of these is the very famous book, Empire, which maybe you've encountered at some point from, which was published uh, 2000 and post-operismo was existing in journals prior to that point, but it really manifested into the mass consciousness around 2000, and it fuses the sort of working, worker-centric perspective with a very, uh, I don't want to say, very 1990s technological optimism, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it was a great, it was a time of great technological optimism for people of all political stripes the 90s, right? The internet uh, had opened up and the possibilities of it seems endless and, and quite democratizing, right? So post reasonable, my understanding is, is takes part in that 90s enthusiasm for new digital technologies. And its central argument, as, as I understand it, is that Labor infused with new digital technologies um, is what really makes this flip where labor becomes, where it really makes that that ontological switch occur where labor becomes the primary force and capital becomes secondary. Uh, Because they argued that, well, historically, technology has been on the side of capital. Uh, It's been used to control workers, automate labor processes. Surveil, you know, Taylorism, all these things. Uh, but the essential argument of postmodernism is that with, with personal computers, digital technology, networks, this allows for workers to collaborate and uh, augment their own capacities in ways that are not necessarily mediated through capital's management or control mechanisms, and so. And that's kind of
0: what they, they mean by immaterial labor. Is that right? Or how, how does that yeah. tie in?
1: Yeah, so immaterial labor is one of the central con- concepts they use to to think through this emerging situation. And the it's, it's not defined consistently and it's defined differently by different people and differently by the same people in different books. It's an evolving concept. But, but broadly, it refers to Labor, computer-mediated labor. Also, although sometimes they also say it refers to kinds of service and care labor that have uh, become more prominent recently. You know, uh, personal aids or uh, medical. So it's it's quite a broad term, but but fundamentally it's driven by this sense of networked com- computation, which allows people to not be stuck together in a physical workplace, but labor to occur in dispersed, networked um, scenarios. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, And I I wanna dig a little bit deeper in your reading of post-operismo theory, you draw out three cyclical stages that help explain the logic of its argument. You talk about human-machine hybridization, abstract cooperation, and new autonomy. Could you uh, unpack these concepts for us? I mean, I, I know you've already touched on that a bit, but just kind of, um, yeah, flesh it out a bit.
1: Yes. So those steps are, are what, I, what I use to try to reconstruct what I think is going on in the theory of immaterial labor. Try to flesh out what is... Uh, often written quite poetically in post-op writings and to try to understand what, what this theory is actually saying is at hand or, or how, how things work. So yeah, there's I'm saying, I'm saying there's three stages. The first being human machine hybridization, where, uh, the idea is that in the, the, the era of immaterial labor, labor, uh, and, and machines become one, quite literally, they say that rather than machines being a sort of instrument of capital, uh, weapon used against labor, machines essentially turn uh, against capital in this era. And the, the major... Uh, upshot of that is the the, the second-stage abstract cooperation, which I, I sort of mentioned earlier, which is this idea that, that workers can, uh, you know, work together, collaborate uh, without capitals mediating structures, without management, without companies, through digital networks. And this leads to uh, the third of the, the, the stuff, which is new autonomy, new autonomy which is that by, by gradations this sort of process uh, allows the working class to achieve an autonomy from capital as such and thereby at one point Negri speaks you know of like is this the is this the third industrial revolution or the transition to communism so they see in this uh, the shift toward computerized labor the germ of some sort of post capitalist economy. And uh, obviously that hasn't occurred yet, um, although they seem to speak of it as if it, it has. Uh, and presumably they're not predicting that it will happen in one fell swoop in the future, so my interpretation is that this has to be a sort of progressive incremental uh, logic, which they understand is unfolding iteratively over time.
0: Right. Great. Um, Now, in order to think about and critique post-operismo, you use a theory influenced by the new reading of Marx and labor process theory. Can you talk about why you choose these strands of Marxist theory and what you gain from using them?
1: Yes. So post-operismo is uh, typically conducts analyses in a very high uh, level of abstraction on the epochal level, right? This is the new era, that's sort of the way they speak and they look at broad trends, macro trends, macro economic or, or political trends, and that's, that's all good and well, but the question is do those apply on the micro level as well? And labor process theory is one of my favorite theoretical frameworks and ways of approaching any new topic regarding labor and technology, because it's fundamentally about the physical process of production, right? The place where labor meets with materials and makes something. And so why I found this interesting was post-op makes these large claims about immaterial labor and new kinds of work. And I thought, well, could we look at the actual labor process of producing artificial intelligence systems, machine learning models, and see whether these high level claims bear out, when we look down at the minute level of the labor process and and how workers are actually interacting with one another, with their their products, and with uh, management. New reading of Marx is uh, similar to neither of the two of those other two uh, approaches. <laughs> uh, this, uh, it's maybe good to envision a triangle. Uh, someone needs to make that diagram, actually. Uh, maybe me. But the, the new reading of Marx is focused on what is called the, 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 the formal aspect of value. Uh, what they mean by that is sort of the qualitative aspect of value in capitalism. And we think of value conventionally as a quantity, right? It's the what makes up a price or what, how much a thing is worth. It has X amount of value expressed in money. But the new rating of Marx, which is uh, probably better referred to, and I wish I had referred to it as this in the book, but value form Marxism. It's probably the better term. New reading of Marx is maybe a subset of value form Marxism, but so be it. Anyhow, the, the, this perspective looks at the, the form of value, the qualitative aspect of value, meaning how value actually structures social relations or how value manifests in social relations. Uh, social relations have to be such that. Uh, things can be valued in the first place and that they can continue to have value uh, so such that the capitalist system can can propagate itself. So, the new reading of Marx or value-form Marxism does not look at particular technologies like like post operismo. and it also doesn't look at particular labor processes. It's it's very uh, theoretical and abstract in a way, but its insistence on values, sort of uh, ability to take many qualitative shapes is really important, I think, because where post-operismo sees a dramatic change in the er- era of material labor, it sees, uh, it sees basically a, a rupture. It says, like, what's significant about this new era of labor, it says, is that capital can't control it. Labor gets increasingly autonomous. Capital can't control the labor. Then you have budding communism, uh, as, as I mentioned. And the reading of Marx says, yeah, you know, there's new technologies and stuff may be happening, but if we look deeper, if we consider how value works, we can see how the same social relations, capitalist social relations are manifesting in novel situations, which beneath the surface are actually quite the same. And in the context of AI, I thought this was extremely prescient, so you could cut through the, the hype on the surface and look at how things are actually working beneath.
0: To test out post Postoperismo's claim, you do an analysis of labor process in the AI industry using labor process theory. In your research, what would you say are some of the similarities or differences that you discovered between the labor process and the AI industry compared to the industries post-operismo tends to discuss?
1: So again, post-operismo often doesn't do detailed particular studies of labor processes, but one of the things they often are thinking about is software production. And production of AI is is software production, right? It's easy to forget. I think that AI is ultimately just software, right? It's a computer program. It's an algorithm, whatever you want to call it. So the production of AI shares many similarities with the tech industry and um, has a dynamics that are quite familiar to most people there. You know, the very posh working conditions for some people uh, and a relative amount of autonomy for workers in the sense that, data, for instance, even data scientists and such, they're, they're highly educated, they're highly paid, and they're often to some degree left to their own devices to manage their own projects. And this, on the surface, would sounds like it lines up with what post-operaries are saying about how capital can't control uh, labor's labor in the same way in this digital era. So that's one of the reasons actually why I wanted to look into this particular kind of work. Uh, but uh, I guess, should I go on about what's different or would you like to come back?
0: Uh, yeah, go ahead.
1: So, uh, I, I mean, I, I you, you have a question. Maybe maybe the next question is actually about this, about this topic. Uh, but despite these uh, you know, ostensible similarities, they're uh, taking a value form perspective or a, uh, I guess, a uh, heterodox perspective. You can see that the workers appear to have freedom, but there's different mechanisms for controlling what they do and managing their their behavior and making sure that they stay on track to produce some sort of uh, profitable commodity. Uh, One of the ones uh, you've mentioned is this thing called empirical control. And one of the interesting things that I uh, discovered from talking to data scientists and machine learning engineers and stuff is the, the management systems that are used in this kind of work. And uh, there's uh, something called Agile, if you've, if you've heard of Agile, the sort of software development framework method or methodology. And that's a particular manifestation called Scrum. Uh, you, you, you know, of, uh, I actually
0: work uh, as a software developer. So I, oh, I use so you this, know,
1: so you know, you know, all about it. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so part of my argument is, is, was, was you know, understanding how Scrum worked and um, the, I don't want to go into like a ton of detail, but one of the is very concerned with time right it involves uh and it involves a changing role of managers right Uh, instead of the manager directly dictating what workers do uh that sort of responsibility is devolved on to the workers and distributed in a sort of peer accountability mechanism where there's a series of commitment making uh you, you know, commit to finishing such and such a task within a certain time period, and another peer uh, signs off to be sort of the authenticator of your commitment, and uh, it's, it achieves the, 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 you know, sort of more flexible uh, achievement of goals in a, in, a, in a completely different way. Do you have that commitment? You're familiar with the sort of commitment-making system? Is that
0: yeah yeah and um i mean it i think at a surface level it, it definitely ties in with the concept of autonomy that you talk about in this book because and just through reading what some of your interviewees were saying um in a certain sense yeah you have autonomy you can choose like which jira card to pick up for example but um uh, yeah i think you're more interested in a more um like a deeper understanding of what autonomy is and like how it relates to the logic of capital and stuff. So, um, yeah. And actually, I mean, what you were saying about the, um, about post operismo thinkers, like keeping it at a really abstract level. I mean, I guess that kind of makes sense. Just reading your book. I mean, I I kept wondering like, well, what about managerial processes? Like, I mean, I mean, yeah, there's definitely empirical controls that, like I can see, like, I'm, it, it felt a little puzzling, like what this new sense of autonomy would actually look like, um, that post-op Risma talks about.
1: Yeah. Well, and, you know, in their minds, of course, that they were the think of the era where this is coming from. Right. And they're thinking about, I don't know, probably Usenet net groups or whatever was going on in, in the 1990s. And it was significant and it, and it remains significant. However, the utopian internet of the 1990s was co-opted through uh, you know, the big platform companies, assuming communication uh, through their platforms. Um, and I, I guess I should be clear, and I, I, I don't know if this comes through in the book or not, but like the the attack on Postaparismo is is not meant to be. Malicious per se, like a, not that I think post operismo is is worthless in any way. I think it's very a very important moment uh, and a very important technological perspective. The attention to technology is very valuable in post operismo but I don't think uh, it has kept kept pace uh, mainly with with new developments. Um, I, I guess one thing, one of the interesting things, one of the big differences that I would say with the AI industry and, and labor therein versus what the post-aprismo thinkers were talking about is that data scientists, machine learning engineers who are producing machine learning systems are are producing automation tools primarily. Uh, and this is the interesting thing, if you believe as I do, that uh, capitalism has a sort of structural drive to automate. To uh, increase the productivity of labor and reduce the the power of uh, workers to sort of direct the production process, and machine learning offers the you know offers a new way of automating labor processes, and so it has a sort of general interest for capital, which is structurally compelled to automate. So. What's very significant about the AI industry and about the workers they're in is that they are producing the means to automation. So they occupy a very interesting and key point um, for capital itself. But of course, they're also workers, and and the the especially interesting part is that uh, what I learned from speaking to these, from these to these people was that for them, uh, automation is a fact of life. And if you work in software, perhaps you are familiar with this too, that automation is just something you you do for yourself to get the repetitive, boring stuff out of the way, right? Uh, rather than write the same chunk of code over and over, you, you try to get it out, out of the way. So automation uh, as a whole takes on an interesting new light in the in the context of the ai industry i think
0: yeah right and uh maybe it'd be helpful for some of the listeners and to know a bit more about uh the the political economy of ai i mean so there's on the one hand ai in like the the alexa systems or google home assistant but the the bigger thing that um you talk about is um the um um blanking on the term it, it fixed capital, um, AI. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and maybe some of the, um, well, yeah, just talk about bit about that. And some of the thematic discussions that, um, that you discovered from talking with the interviewees.
1: Okay. So from a political economy perspective, What's interesting about AI is not only exactly what its technical capacities are, but where it sits in the economic chain of events, the circuit of capital, if you will. So, for instance, uh, an AI system that is sold as as a consumer commodity, you know, it's made, it goes to market, and it goes to you, like a... Let's say a, I mean, a smartphone is loaded with AI. You can consider a smartphone a very good AI commodity. It has Google Maps. It has speech recognition on it. It has uh, face recognition software on it. It's loaded with AI applications. But even, yeah, like you said, like a smart speaker or uh, a smart TV, anything with a voice voice, User interface on it. it is using speech recognition, which is powered by AI. But, anyways, those things that buy uh, that you buy and they they leave the market, they go into your personal possession. Uh, those are consumer commodities, and their economic life is basically done there uh, once they leave the system. You can use them for other functions, but as a commodity, they've served their purpose. Right? They're they're done. Um, now. Some commodities are not intended for consumer consumption, but some are consen, contend, intended, rather, uh, to be used by other companies in their business processes. And in political economic terms, this 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 role is called fixed capital. For instance, you might uh, say you have a. I mean, say you want to make a. Uh, you know, a new smartphone, you're a new smartphone company, and you want to make a security system so people can unlock their phones with their face. Now, you could build that from the ground. Uh, You could, but it would be very tough. takes a lot of data, blah, 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 a lot of work. So you could perhaps go just to Google and buy uh, that facial recognition algorithm uh, already trained up, good to go, and you could plop that into your system, now in that case, that application is going not to private consumption, but is now being uh, a component of the ongoing capitalist operations of that of your company. And that's fixed capital. So there the, the whatever you paid for that product is now sort of slow, slowly trickling into your future operations. And this is the more significant phase of, uh, of AI. That's what I argue. Uh, and my colleagues in other work have argued that this is the AI that we need to be thinking about more than the particular things we see at home. Because this is the stuff that often, invisibly, is uh, more and more all around us now. And underpinning all sorts of business processes, decision-making processes. And who knows what else so that's the the kind of ai we want to think about uh primarily now what was your your second question was about what sort of uh yeah what did you interview
0: yeah right what did you find from that and um i know you you drew out some themes from that um like the um Empirical, well, we already talked about empirical control, um, AI as automation and automation of AI work.
1: Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, as, as I said, automation, I think, takes on an interesting valence in this kind of work. Uh, software work generally, automation is not necessarily the boogeyman like it is for Marxist analyses historically, right? these automation is something capital unleashes on the worker as a weapon and what you have in the state of scientific work is automation being a practice of the workers themselves as well as something capital does on them right but the interesting really interesting thing is that uh, machine learning is itself being used to automate the production of machine learning this, this, is, this was the real, wholly unexpected thing that I came across in this research. Uh, and uh, it's sort of currently guiding the direction of my, 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 my research now. So maybe I'll talk a bit about more about that, if that seems like a good idea. Yeah, so the data scientists, machine learning engineers and such that I spoke to, you know, I asked them, what are, your, what are your thoughts about automation? Are you, you know, the, 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 the automation debate is back since the last, I don't know, since five years ago, maybe a bit more. And uh, this is a debate that comes and goes cyclically uh, every couple decades, right? New technologies come out, the question of automation flares up, anxieties arise. And uh, people come out with different theories about what is going to happen this time. So as, as people involved in the production of the, the, the current wave of automation technologies, I wanted to see what data scientists and, and, and the like had to, had to say about this. And what was quite interesting is what for most of my interviewees, maybe two were of the different view, but the majority of my interviewees thought that their work, their you know, highly skilled data scientific work would Certainly, be automated, uh, and we're more or less concerned about it. Maybe not in the immediate future, but somewhere, some, th- some we're somewhere talking about reskilling already. Like I, it's it's coming. My my work that I do is is at risk. Uh, my career is at risk. This and that. And some thought it was you know further off in the future, but that certainly any computational work uh, could be in principle automated because, you know, what's interesting about computational work. One of the guys told me was, you know, unlike say plumbing, where you have to have to, you know, tactilely grasp a ad hoc, uh, configuration of pipes and parts and things that's going to be different in every single house you go into, uh, well, for one, software work doesn't require having a body necessarily, right? It's uh, the manipulation of, uh, uh, of, uh, you know, um, open or closed electrical gates, uh, ultimately, and this can be done by software. So software can beget software in a sense, and yeah, that's that, that's a very obvious thing, probably for people working in software, and uh, and uh, it's quite a revelation to me and and to many people. Who are, are not technical, in, in you know, do not technically inclined in the software world, but approaching it as outsiders from a more sociological perspective. So yeah, the, the fact that you know this kind of work, data science, let's say, it's data science work to, to refer to it in broad strokes, which you know by by most accounts. Um, whether it be in the in the, the media or in universities or even industry's own terms, right? This is the this is the career of the future, right? This is uh, how to future proof your economy. Uh, you know, uh, McKinsey or Accenture or somebody would tell you: train people as data scientists. This is the way. But data scientists themselves are are um, experiencing concerns that manual laborers. Uh, have experienced in the past about the kind of work they do and the the possibility of it being uh, degraded by the introduction of technologies that do that same work.
0: I mean, I I was just playing around with some um, AI before, um, well, I guess while reading this book, um, there's so many online courses that are, coming out, um, for, um, not only AI, just any new computer programming technology. Um, and like I first did something where it was, um, uh, I guess more general AI, but then I, I, um, I did an auto ML course as well. And I'm like, Oh, wow. That just, that just, um, sped up the process so much. It's like, Oh, all the, the time spent before thinking about like what to pull out from the data, like it, it just did it for you. So, um, yeah, yeah, that was.
1: And that's that that's that's one of the things that I learned about um, from my interviews was this, this practice, this technology called AutoML, which is literally the automation of the production of machine learning. And one of the things I do is extract a, a theoretical significance from this particular technology. Because if this kind of work is producing the technology of automation, and that work is being automated, then you have a meta automation, you have a automation of automation. And I am just trying to work out the, the theoretical details of what the implications of what this uh, Exactly means, but the way I try to grapple with it in the book is through a concept called uh, that I've called tentatively synthetic automation. It's a way to try to think about what's what's different and what's significant about automation with machine learning, such that it can be stacked in this sort of meta way, and. So the best way to, I think, to think through this is to do a sort of historical approach. So listeners may or may not be familiar with the the first era of AI industry, which, let's say, took off in the the late 80s and uh, persisted for 10 or 20 years. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And that... In, in industrial sense, in the industrial sense, took the form of what are called the expert systems, which are essentially a series of rules that are you know, pe- people take. Well, what, what we're called knowledge engineers would interview experts in a certain field, and you know extract their knowledge and encode it in a symbolic way in a system as a set of rules. Right, so. What would you do if this happened? Well, I would do X. And then if this happened, well, I would do Y. And try to encode this sort of uh, expert knowledge in a system that a unskilled worker could query about a workplace situation and obtain that expert knowledge. But, and you know, you have a reasoning engine that would have a sort of sense of, some sort of logical, symbolic logic system in there. And it would be put onto a, a base of, Knowledge encoded in a certain way, and you could you could apply it at different contexts, and that was the first sort of commercial application of AI that took off, and it worked in limited contexts. But of course, uh, as you can imagine, you know, if you have to hand build these systems, which you did, they were quite labor intensive, and if the domain that you were representing. Uh, in that encoded knowledge changed at all, it would have to be manually rebuilt, right? You know, so if it turns out that you know variable A was supplied by some supplier and then you had to switch it for a new supplier and that chemical now has slightly different properties, well then that would have to change the whole thing and you'd have to go through and adjust all of those connections in the logical web. So you know these systems automated knowledge in a sense but their production was was very non-automated and and as they tried to, as people tried to apply them to more and more complex domains it became infeasible to create them right and so they they realized well we have to we have to automate the process of getting information in and that couldn't be obtained at the time there wasn't the requisite technology for it people tried it didn't work until uh, machine learning came back on the scene. you know It was around since the early days of AI, but it didn't, didn't take for many reasons. But with the 2010s, machine learning came back powered by new hardware developments, new, new software uh, innovations as well. But it came back, and it turned out to be the secret to get a machine to input patterns into itself, basically. Or to train and get an algorithm to get produced automatically, more or less, uh, by another algorithm. Anyways, so in the first case, the automation you could automate a a labor process, you could automate knowledge of labor process, but you had to have these skilled workers do it uh, with quite labor-intensive process to produce the expert system. Um, Now, the the exciting thing. From the, the capitalist perspective on machine learning, is that you can automate a process without actually capturing the knowledge about it from a worker. The if you can gather relative, enough relevant data on the relevant variables, nobody needs to actually know uh, how that process is, you know, that particular thing is completed. The, you know machine learning algorithms are famously black boxed right uh, often they you can't re- reconstruct exactly what logic is going on beside but behind inside them but they' have found some sort of pattern and this is the I I, I believe this is the, the fundamental basis for the, the capital capitals enthusiasm about machine learning is this prospect of an algorithm without knowing precisely how to build that algorithm step by step by step.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's kind of skipping the, the Taylorist process of like codifying the the labor process because you're just able to apply and, um, recursively get, um, the, the results that you need to, um, automate it. Um,
1: yeah, exactly. Taylorism is the key point there. Thank you for mentioning that. Um. With knowledge engineering, you know they were in interviewing people and getting it typically in the workplace. Uh, workers were forced to talk to these knowledge engineers, but yes, uh, the other option is literally just to surveil workers and study how they do the work, and i.e. Taylorism, motion motion studies, motion time motion studies, etc. Uh, yeah, so I think that's a significant break in terms of. Uh, uh, machine learning powered automation, and that's why I call it I call it synthetic. In that, rather than uh, be based on surveillance or like a a copying of an existing process, with with uh, machine learning, you can automate in a in a sort of synthetic way, where you can assemble the process with no actual known referent to be comparing it to. Mm-hmm.
0: And it seems like in your book, um, so' you're, you're primarily drawing on empirical forms of control like scrum and this synthetic automation as your um, as your means of disagreeing with the new autonomy that post um is saying, is happening will happen in the future it's a a little ambiguous um um, like when exactly that's happening but um so so that's um now at the end of your book you you argue that a synthesis of new reading of marx labor process theory and post operismo is a worthwhile task um well, it's out of the scope of the book. I'm wondering if you could just kind of briefly elaborate on why you think that this synthesis is um, like what you see out of it.
1: Absolutely. Uh, if I could, though, I'd like to go back and just sort of add on to your, your previous. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You were saying. Um, because the, the takeaway, well, one of the, the takeaway points that I, I like to, I, I would like to the book to get across is that contra, contra to what to post charismo's uh, newly autonomous labor what what I argue based on this the this, this study of AI industry is that what we actually see here is is capitals increasing in time from labor yeah yes um, and not the other way around. And that's not just a, you know, a nice rhetorical reversal, uh, which it is also that, I think, uh, but, <laughs> but, but, but quite literally, uh, what synthetic automation represents is, is a, I mean, automation itself is a sort of abstraction, uh, autonomization of the production process from the human labor. And synthetic automation sort of, Applies that, but to the process of creating the tools of automation itself. So, the argument is that capital has to not only automate the primary processes, but the secondary processes as well, by which it achieves automation of the primary processes. So, I just wanted to uh,
0: add yeah, that on. thanks. Off. Thanks for that.
1: Um, so, about the synthesis of these three different theoretical points of view. Well, I mean why it's valuable is is because ultimately adhering to points of, to to schools of thought is only useful insofar as they map onto the world and have utility. Right. And, uh, I'm, I'm not interested in factional, factional fighting among different theoretical schools, but rather taking what's, what's good from, from all of, you know, what's out there and, uh, trying to produce an analysis that is insightful or somehow novel. And so whatever is good from all these three uh, schools should be added together. And I think, as I briefly said earlier, new reading of Marx focuses on the formal, the qualitative expression of value in different social relations. I think that's highly important to understand how the value relation persists, even though dramatic changes happen in the technological substratum and, and different aspects of society change, but we're still in a capitalist society. And to the, the, the value form, the new reading of Marx's perspective, uh, tries to understand how that's the case and how value has such, such a causal efficacy in the physical world. Labour process theory, as I, as I said, I, it's, its value is simply just zooming in on the micro-scale and looking at how uh, how grand theory, like Marxist political economy, connects to the actual physical processes going on in the micro-scale. Connecting those two is very important, right? Uh, I think, uh, to stay away from purely existing in the abstract realm and to verify your theory by testing it in the empirical, uh, with empirical data. And finally, post great value, of course, is its, its sort of technological interest and its, its concern that technology might, you know, might change something important, uh, which of course, techno- uh, in, in the sort of Marxian sphere, post-operismo is probably one of the first to engage deeply with computer technologies and network technologies. And even if they did so in an often sort of high- level way they they still find out you know a lot of uh, salient aspects about these technologies like it, it is true that network technology has has changed life like significantly and uh, it would be it would be silly to uh, understate that so those three aspects can work together I think uh, and produce a more comprehensive way of studying the world.
0: Yeah. Well, concluding your book, you consider a few ways that labor might be able to confront AI capital. Could you talk a little bit about what these are? Um, and I know one of them was, uh, sabotage, which I believe post operismo thinkers talked about early on, but not so much, um, in their later works.
1: Yeah. Antonio Negri again, uh, this is the guy who talked about sabotage in his younger years. And there's some interesting work that's been done on data poisoning, for instance. You know, int- intentionally messing up your data such that when it's appropriated from you, it doesn't accurately reflect what it's supposed to reflect. And I talked about that. And some data strikes are another uh, another. Similar term, I don't know, withholding one's data, I guess. But to my current mind, what I think the most uh, the most effective way for labor to confront AI capital is to figure out how um, to how to do AI without the infrastructure of capital, and as uh, we didn't really talk about it today, but uh, anyone anyway, who looks into the sort of industry of AI will find that when you buy an AI commodity, for the most part, you are just renting access to it from a cloud server owned by one of the big AI companies, right? You you access it remotely. It's centralized in their ecosystem, and you need to use the right uh, ecosystem of software to have access to it. And so... Truly, um, you know, novel uses of AI or or revolutionary uses of AI will have to build their own infrastructure to operate on, and you know, the auto ML solutions are uh, offered by Google are are not going to be the the way forward for non technical people like myself to use AI, right? Using Google's own tools hosted on Google servers. So, you know, the question of what sort of clouds, what sort of networks, what sort of you know, what sort of things do we need to have AI that is is directed uh, democratically and and applied in ways uh, that people actually want it to be applied these are some of the questions. Also, you know, the the question of machine learning being trained on data uh, remains a big question, because what do we want in the future? uh, If we were to have a a democratic AI or a non-capitalist AI, and we need data to train the algorithms, where are we going to get that data from? How is that going to be used? And with what mechanism? With what sort of social relations? So I think in, in, in short, I think the way to labor might confront AI capital is by, <laughs> yeah, to, to, to use a word we've, we've used many times today is to consider how an autonomous AI uh, might be constructed.
0: Yeah. Well, as a final question, uh, I want to ask um, what new projects you're working on, if you have any books that... Um, are forthcoming or anything like that.
1: Thanks. Uh, I'll just say briefly, following up on the synthetic automation idea, I've been looking into more ways that capital might try to minimize the necessary human component in in data science production of artificial intelligence. And a thing I'm looking at, I'm working on now is called synthetic data you encountered that stuff? Yeah?
0: No, I have not, no.
1: Okay, so the basic premise is that capital, you know, data-intensive capitals now, they need data, of course. And most data comes from surveillance of users of, of platforms and, and random people on the Internet and whatnot. But resistance to this is growing uh, around the world. In the EU, you have the GDPR general data protection regulation that limits, puts limits on the use and collection and storage of data. So I start, I've started thinking about, well, what are these data intensive companies going to do if their access to free, cheap data gets cut off? And the answer is that they're trying to create ways to generate data rather than collect it. Uh, there's different means for this, but for instance, using simulations to collect data about driving cars in rather than driving them in the real world and creating synthetic faces from scratch to train facial recognition algorithms on instead of using real faces. Um, so, this is the thing I'm looking into now. What, what sort of implications could a shift to synthesis, the synthesis of data rather than surveillance have for uh, data-intensive capitalist societies? I I have a new paper on on that in the journal New Media and Society uh, called Towards a Political Economy of Synthetic Data for anyone who's interested.
0: Great. Well, I think we've taken up enough of your time today, James. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Awesome. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Um, I really enjoyed it.